I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about who we come from, about the kind of world you want to live in and leave for future generations, the communities you want to build and how to do that. Let's talk about kindness and compassion, freedom and gentleness, about struggle, the struggle for power and how to challenge it. Let's talk about change and getting into trouble, about justice and fairness. Let's talk about creativity and creating beauty, about the body, about creating safe spaces for the body and spaces for the body to heal. But very often the pattern is that people are expressing themselves however they want to in their own, you know, as part of their own character or their own desire, whatever have you, and they get sanctioned and told, no, that is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that sanctioning is quite brutal. And so we realise too that systems of power are enforced through violence. Mm -hmm. And I always say, and how did it make you feel? I'm not usually a fan of reeling off people's accomplishments. It can be counterproductive, particularly as I want to move away from attaching personal value to someone's qualifications or achievements. You know, this idea that you have more value if you have the right education or you come from the right background and less value if you don't fulfil this constructed criteria. But in light of what we're going to talk about today, I think knowing a little bit about the background of today's guest will help frame some of the complex issues we discuss. So, with that in mind, let me tell you about Jessica Horn. An alumna of Smith College, the alma mater of Gloria Steinem, Sylvia Plath and Otelia Cromwell, the first black woman to receive a doctorate from Yale, Jessica is a women's rights and gender equality expert, writer, academic, activist and poet. She's director of programs at the African Women's Development Fund in Ghana, has visited 54 countries, lived in eight of them on four different continents, including Fiji, Lesotho, Pakistan and the States, amongst others. She's what I call a polymath. I know we bandy that word about a lot these days, but hidden in the meaning, namely someone who knows a lot about many different subjects, is a curiosity. And underneath that curiosity is a deep compassion. And I believe that it's that compassion that drives her desire for justice and fairness for people, for women and for African women. 
African women across the continent have actually articulated for generations, also it's not even just now, a concern about these inequalities um, and have done things to change them. We talk about activism, African feminism, poetry, motherhood, her love of beauty and how it impacts her need to create. And so I find in words also the the capacity to create beauty. And um, so I enjoy that. Sometimes you find two words that come together and it's just really exciting. (laughs) And of course, we talk about music. Jessica, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so grateful and so excited to hear what you have to say. It's a total delight, also because you're such a deep thinker when it comes to thinking about us, but also thinking about art. So I'm really excited for this. Yeah. So, I mean, I call you a polymath because you do many, many things. You are a, and you're going to have to correct me if I say these things wrong, but I would call you an activist. I would call you an academic. I would call you an African feminist. I would call you a poet. I would call you um, a very clever woman. And I say that, um, I think we use the word clever, like we, this intellectual thing, but for me, cleverness is a whole thing. It's how we think, it's how we feel, it's all of these things. You're a philosopher. I think you think of you as many things, but why don't you tell us who you are and how you got into what you got into? It's funny, in a lot of African traditions, there's that um, culture of calling people by their name and the names of their ancestors. And I feel like you just did that to me. That's such an honor to be um, framed with those names. And as you said it, I laughed and I thought, all I am is just a product of my family and my family lineage. (laughs) Because, um, you know, my family on both sides, my uh, mother is from Western Uganda, so from the mountains of the moon. When I say that, people think I'm just being poetic and poncy, but I'm like, no, really, that's what they're called. Uh, the Ruinsori Mountains, uh, my father's from New York, the Bronx, um, but both of them come from lineages of people who were artists, uh, uh, but also people who were very considerate and thoughtful and engaged in the process of thinking about how we organise and reorganise our collective lives. So... On my father's side, um, his mother was a great pianist, but also parents were trade unionists. My dad was very active in the political theatre movement, um, very active in forming what has now become Theatre for Development, so sort of like community theatre about issues facing community in the African context. Um, My mum's family, her her father was uh, a writer and a real advocate um, for writing in African languages and reclaiming African language um, as a birthright. Um, And he was also a diplomat and, you know, part of drafting Uganda's constitution, etc. And so I feel like that heritage is kind of passed down to them um, and then passed on to me. So I suppose it's not a surprise. (laughs) My father's a literature professor, theatre director, was very involved in, again, that kind of heyday of African production, creative production in the post-independence era. My mum was a nurse, a midwife, health visitor, um, and then took it upon herself to go through a process of political consciousness, raising in her own self um, 
in the context of you know National University of Lesotho <laughs> which of course is Marxist and what have you and so here I am uh, a poet um, but have always also been an activist and have devoted the majority of my life to the practice of activism mm -hmm. so working in organizations um, and with collectivities and movement spaces that are concerned about transforming the world so that it is a place where African women can actually breathe and can fulfill their multiple dreams and um, live in bodies that are celebrated and are safe and don't have to be um, surveilled or policed or healed constantly because of the constant attacks and violence that we experience. So I see that in the broader sense as the sort of work that I do. I'm concerned about the process of us being able to find freedom in our own bodies. Um, and to me, that kind of embodied politics is vital. So I work in philanthropic organizations, funds, I've worked in NGOs, I've worked in policy space, I've worked in doing quite a bit of research and analysis around those questions. And the poetry has kind of come with it too, because, you know, you write poetry about the world that you experience. And so poetry has also ended up in many instances being about sort of uh, channeling the experiences of inequality, injustice, but also the great diversity <laughs> that exists in the world and trying to find it and use it as a tool for beauty and contributing to beauty, which I think is one of the core things that keeps us alive. Mm -hmm. You've said so many things there and I have so many questions, but before we do that, I think it would be helpful. You know, I think about the word activist, I think about the word feminist and feminism and I think about the words African feminism and I think especially in this time when words are continually being transmuted and redefined would you define when we said because I feel like we're in a world now where everyone is an activist and I grew up at a time where there was it was kind of a hallowed word in the sense that you kind of had to do something or it had to cost you something to be called that so would you explain to me what you, how would you define activism? Mm, great question and an important one as you're saying for this time. I mean, I see activism as a process of taking it upon oneself or a group of people to take it upon themselves to recognize that there's a problem in the world, right? So there's something that's not fair. There's something that's unjust. And to take it upon yourself to really understand what that is why it's the way it is but then the crucial part is and then do something to help change it mm -hmm. so for me activism is really an it's a verb it's an action it's an active word it's not just about naming it's just not just about framing and naming it's about also doing Mm -hmm. And when you talked about cost, it's interesting because I think that's potentially what differentiates, I think, uh, in the activist realm. I mean, these days, people have basically broken so much ground in naming so many issues and in framing certain things and with a tremendous amount of risk, which means that certain conversations are more possible now, which is really beautiful. I always say that your activism is not effective unless you're getting in trouble because the point is that you are challenging systems of power. And mm. if those systems of power can't feel your challenge, they won't respond. Wow. wow. So if, if you're getting in trouble in some way or another, whether it's massively unpopular 
um, feedback um, on on your ideas or whether it's literally the police or the state, you know, pressing on you. Um, it means that um, you might need to change up your strategy a little bit because it means that you're not actually really pushing on the mode of power. Mm -hmm. And I think in previous generations, that sense of cost was because that when people pressed on those nodes of power, the response back from the systems of power was very strong. So I know that your parents were very active in, in the anti-apartheid movement, for example. That was a case where really it was a life or death in terms of the activism could cost you your life. It could certainly cost you your job. Um, you know, it could cost you your security. Um, but people did it. Um, and the bravery that we ascribe to that kind of activism is because in some respects, you realize that people, there, were, there are some people who are willing to risk and to lose. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of loss involved in activism. There's a lot of loss. And um, I think it's actually why a lot of people aren't activists. It's just because even though the status quo might be unbearable sometimes or not so nice, sometimes it's easier to deal with it than to have to face the process of change. Because the process of change is really often... Um, a lot of loss mm. um, so I mean I, I feel responsible I, I was raised with with a sense that one of the things about being a human being is contributing to um, the constant process of trying to find freedom mm. and um, so I kind of feel like a responsibility in a way to do it but it, it's also something that then emboldens me so that you know there are awkward moments always even in a workplace where it's seemingly benign space where something is happening and you don't think it's right and activism is the choice to 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 say something or to do something to say this is wrong even if you face you know being ostracized or being silenced or getting in trouble with your boss or you know whatever it is right and I, I still feel motivated to to stand up and say that's not fair or that's not right and it's sort of quite a deep feeling in me, but I do feel disappointed with myself if I ever don't stand up and say when something is wrong. Um, so, yeah. And I mean, in terms of everybody being an activist now, in a way, maybe it's just a sign of the times that, that sort of generations before had fought so much to open spaces. I said that, you know, lots of conversations are possible, but I still think that people need to check in on their activism and say, is what I am doing working? <laughs> um, and I think one index of that is, like I said, whether or not you're getting in trouble. That's great. I love that. <laughs> and then speaking to a little bit for me, when we talk about feminism, yes, but African feminism, because I think, you know, we still are in this space where feminism is this Western liberal you know, and sort of um, definition. And I think, you know, feminism defining it has been in waves. You know, we talk about the first wave, the second wave, the third wave of feminism. If you were to speak about feminism, but African feminism, what are you speaking of and what are you speaking into? Sure. So for me, feminism is just the analysis or understanding that uh, the world is fundamentally unequal um, along gendered lines and that the reason for it is patriarchal power relations so there's a system of power that creates inequality and that power that creates inequality is patriarchal power um, but as african feminists across the continent in the diversities have also pointed out 
that in addition to patriarchal power, there are also other axes of power that frame African experience and therefore African patriarchies. So you have colonial power, the economic power that comes along with, that came along with that Western domination. Um, you have intra-identity power, so ableism, um, discrimination on the basis of HIV status, homophobias, all of those things then kind of impact on and make it so that different people, different African women experience also those inequalities in different ways. So the concern is about um, understanding that injustice in the world is caused by patriarchal power and these intersections, and then the interest to then stop that, <laughs> right? to change it, to, to do something, to, to, to transform that um, so that everybody can be free. Mm. And um, when people say that feminism is Western and we need to leave it, I just say, why are you giving up all the good ideas to the West? There, is a, there are traditions of feminism in the West, of course, but there are also traditions of feminism in the African continent. So for me, I don't even think that they need to be in active dialogue necessarily because African women across the continent have actually articulated for generations, also it's not even just now, um, a concern about these inequalities um, and have done things to change them. So that's, that's the way I see it. It's, it's, and it's multiple too. So, you know, different historical contexts have created different kinds of feminisms. Um, and you see, um, you know, now in terms of how across the continent, uh, feminisms in different places and amongst different constituencies articulate themselves. So there's also debate within African feminism. It's not like it's one thing. Um, but for me, it's deeply rooted in the history of, of African consciousness. And I always say to me, um, African feminism is, is, it's, is a liberation movement. It's the yeah. continuation of Africa's liberation. And um, it's a liberation movement. And it, and it carries on very much from the efforts um, of everybody who has tried to contribute to, to the process of ensuring that more and more Africans, and indeed eventually all Africans, are free from oppression. Yes. I love that. Um, the reason I should say why I asked you to come onto this podcast, because obviously I said that this is about creatives and speaking to creatives, but I think activism is deeply creative. So I want to talk about your process. Um, but I want to just quote, I want to quote you to you. And I want you to speak into that as we talk about process. You said in one of your articles in Horn Pedagogy, you said that part of this thing of coming together, it includes moments of remembering. Those are like two words, remembering experience, literally the act of putting the body of my emotions back together. I find that such a powerful statement, remembering, but the body of your emotion, just so, so powerful. So when it comes to sort of, I know we talk about the personal being political, you've got your personal process, but also you're taking your personal and the things that you care about into these activist spaces. Would you speak into, uh, into that and your process when you're approaching, say, a problem and how to respond to that problem? I know I've asked you a very wide question and we might have to work our way in but start where you want and we'll take it where it goes so my argument is the best place to start is always the body because the body is us the body is all we have we're born into these bodies we die um whatever spirits or whatever you believe manifests as the you know the other entities of our being are actually housed in the body so the body is us um, and so we move through the world and we engage the world with our bodies so what I like to do, um, because I do quite a bit of space holding, but also um, processes of creating space for growing activist consciousness, mm -hmm. is to begin in the body. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Um, and to actually have, rather than to begin with the concepts, to actually have people situate whatever we're talking about in their own lived experience and build it out from there. I find it one of the most clear ways for people to understand some of the big ideas, you know, in, in, in political thinking, but also it helps people to kind of situate where, how power dynamics have acted on them and acted on their bodies, but also where they are at with it. And you can kind of check in with yourself about it. One of the questions, for example, when doing um, sort of training around thinking about gender, power and patriarchy is to ask people to um, get into small groups and to just remember when is the first moment that you understood yourself to be a boy or a girl or a man or a woman, or if you're in um, you know, queer spaces, you would also say trans, a trans person, which is oftentimes another process on top of that. Mm. Um, and it's fascinating um, to hear people's stories, but very often the pattern is that people are expressing themselves however they want to in their own you know, as part of their own character or their own desire, whatever have you, and they get sanctioned and told, no, that is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that sanctioning is quite brutal. And so we realize too that systems of power are enforced through violence. Mm -hmm. And I always say, and how did it make you feel? And the feeling is then often the kind of entry point to understanding again how systems of power act on us because most people don't like the way that they're gendered. Mm, mm. because it's usually people are usually gendered as a way of saying don't do that this is what it means to be and so it's usually as a sanctioning process as opposed to an affirmative process of right, saying exactly right. you know go girl you should be in that tree you know or <laughs> yes my son you know sing and dance baby you know love it right no it's it's usually the opposite that you're being told that something that you feel is quite intrinsic to your happiness is not what you're allowed to do because it's inappropriate as a boy or a girl or a woman or a man so you go into the emotions of it so um from that place you're then able to understand even the complaint that we have about patriarchy and its limitations because you can feel it i remember what that felt like to be told by the system of power as embodied in my uncle or, you know, my teacher or whoever, um, that that was not right. You know, that I can't do the thing that was making me happy or bringing, you know, letting me be with my friends or what have you. Um, and you start to understand the politics. So for me, that's a very essential process um, is to, yeah, to, to bring it to the body. Another is um, to not allow our work to be disembodied. Um, and I find the more official the spaces get, the more disembodied they become. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's very important that, you know, even in so-called serious work and serious workplaces and serious spaces of serious dialogue, you know, that people do bring it back to breath to kind of connect with self. Because again, there's a kind of humanness that happens when people connect back to the body. So we remember, we literally put our bodies back together mm. and, acknowledge that our bodies are in in the picture mm. um just a, a final thought i found that um movements of people who deal with their bodies on a daily because that's the issue so women living with hiv women with disabilities are often far better at this mm. they're really really good at acknowledging that we get tired or that we need special things that our bodies you know 
don't all not all bodies fit in the same way we need to adapt the spaces to make sure that you know therefore adapt society to make sure that we're accounting for the diversity of the bodies in this space um and i feel like that's one thing i've learned very much um from those movements of women is how to also really consider that you know that not everybody is feeling great all the time we're not all in full health or our bodies work in different ways and we have to can pre consider that before we enter and allow for the diversity and sometimes learn new skills in order to also be able to welcome everybody um, and to ensure that everybody has voice everybody has space and everybody can contribute and what they can to the political energy of change Also, what I love you um, about what you said is about this this notion of collectivity that you know we understand through understanding other people. And I want to I'm going to quote you again to yourself um, because I just think it's really important, particularly actually now with what's going on with COVID and people are having are being forced to reevaluate how they do things and how they operate with each other because you know we're locked down, certain people can't go to the shops, some people are unable to do the things that they did before. But this is what you said, creating community is work. It takes emotional labor to listen and embrace each other as much as it takes political labor to explore disagreements and hold each other with mutual respect. Would you speak into, I mean, you've, I think you've already touched on it, but would you speak into a little bit more about how that how that works and how and how we navigate that because that there's a lot of competing needs when we talk about mutual respect you know and exploring disagreement so would you speak into that sure i mean one of the things about um the process of change is that everybody has an idea about what they want it to look like and i think there's a humility that you need to have because your experience is not the same as somebody else's. And you have to learn a tremendous amount, again, from experiences that are different from yours. I take the disability movement as an example. Um, I remember one woman saying in a space, she said, you know, all of you able-bodied people need to remember, you are only temporarily able-bodied. Wow. And it's true. So we act as if I'm an able-bodied person and I act as if, the whole world will always work the same way for me. I can climb upstairs, I can do this, I can do that. Truth be told, an accident could happen to me, you know, hopefully not, but I mean, it could to anybody. Um, you could lose, you know, your sight, your hearing, you know, I mean, quite easily, actually. Mm. Um, and, and so there's something about then actually acknowledging that the world is is not always permanent in the way we think it is, but that also there are people who have very different experiences of the world and we're often hardly thinking about them. The number of times that we organize events and don't think about the fact that there's three stairs to enter, that can impact on older people being able to access the space, you know, um, if they're on, you know, walking frames, using walking sticks or what have you, it can impact people in wheelchairs. 
um, we don't think about that. So I feel like that's just at a basic level of just even acknowledging the sheer diversity of humans um, and the spaces. When it comes to political disagreement, I mean, again, you know, there are many paths um, to freedom. And so very often some of the most lively, but also the most brutal conversations happen within movements about what people believe to be the path for change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I feel like there's always got to be some bottom lines. So there's got to be something in there about compassion and a degree of gentleness, because I think sometimes when we're fighting oppression, the person next to you is actually the easiest person to feel agency over. <laughs> And sometimes what you find is that rather directing, rather than directing your energy against an oppressor, you would direct it against your sister because you can actually do it. (laughs) And somehow the oppressor is like a little far away. So I can, I can hurt you though. You're right next to me. Um, So we can do that. So sometimes I feel like there's a need to actually kind of lay some bottom lines in terms of some of the terms of our debate and being, you know, having a degree of kindness, also having a degree of understanding about the fact that we can't always agree. I feel like that's something that really needs to be applied to Twitter culture, mm. um, which I know a lot of people feel is incredibly hostile. And it's not just the bots and the trolls, because that's one phenomenon, but actually amongst ourselves, we, it's also a platform that it doesn't inspire much compassion and much patience because it's so quick and so short. And um, um, there, I think political disagreements are very common, but I feel like we need to find a way to enlarge the space for dialogue so that we can really come at it with a sense of trying to find, to seek greater political clarity as opposed to trying to win. That's very, very interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, My question though is, for example, when remember with all the Occupy stuff, you know, Occupy Wall Street, Occupy London, I remember going to uh, a thing at St. Paul's Cathedral and they were having a a discussion and they were all talking and they were trying, I was watching them trying to make sure everybody's voice had equal value and equal space. But what I saw happen, it's that still the dominant voices kind of rose to the top. It was like an inevitability. And so I always wonder and maybe this is just a human nature thing. How do you, even in, in these spaces and you're, we're trying to seek humility and, and you're remembering not to sort of impose yourself on someone else to, to even realize that actually I need to sort of sit back and let the other person's voice rise to the top and not control. And I'm just always wondering how does one do that? And I don't even know if you have the answer. It's almost like a a philosophical question I have with myself, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Sometimes it depends on the spaces and the history of the space and how much work people have done on themselves. Um, You do find that the quiet ones often the most um, insightful just because people who are quiet are listening all the time. And... um, Usually there's a practice in, in facilitation space if you're facilitating dialogues to really actively um, to give space um, to people who haven't spoken to um, point out when some people are talking a lot. Um, so to sort of try and create a space where people do feel that they're able to talk. Sometimes also to just begin the space by um, acknowledging everybody who's there and allowing them to say at least one thing into the space so that their voice has been heard at least once. So that then it's not 
uh, like breaking a personal silence to talk. So I feel like there's different techniques of that, but it really depends on what the space is about. We're very, very, very used to this model of, um, of the one leader, the single leader, the charismatic leader. It's very, very common. And again, that's another thing that's entered our social media space with that influence idea. It's that idea of the charismatic leader who we sort of follow without question and listen to and think, oh, you're amazing and want to be associated with. Um, and we follow them, <laughs> as we call it in social media. And that model has its pros and cons. One of the deficits is, is of it is that it's, it has a tendency towards lack of democracy. I mean, you don't actually hear the breadth of the voices in the space um, or even allow for critique because once you put somebody into a position where they are an authority, it means they're actually harder to question. So I think it's, it's very much about how we, how we handle the space and how we do it. And it's a bit like, I mean, this is a, a podcast that's partly about art. If you think about music process, um, it's the balance in a music process. If you've got a song and then suddenly like the drummer is just like extra, mm. you know, or like there's a sax on the side that's just sort of <laughs> gone off and is just doing all sorts of things. And it's like, you can't hear anything else, you know, um, in a music process, you always try and adjust the levels, right? As we say, to make sure mm. that everything in its time, um, everything has its space. But at the same time, you're paying attention to the whole. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like that's, that's, that's something that you kind of have to apply when you're managing collective space. Mm. But every movement has its own politics about leadership. And so some are very happy to have that, you know, only hearing one horn, only hearing one drum. Um, yeah. And others are more interested in like the, the collective sound. It's interesting you use music as an, as an example, because I always say that with songs, what you're doing is you're, you're using the instrument, the, the musicians are there to serve the song. And if ever, if you ever stop serving the song, you do get this thing where you'll have like a drummer overplaying or the piano player just overplaying. But when you understand you're serving what the song needs, everyone starts to adjust. And we talk in musical terms, when we're all playing together, you have this moment, we call it being in the pocket. And it's when everyone is just moving together and you're surfing together. And there is this feeling of locked inness because you know you're serving the song and there is nothing like it but it does take work. It takes finding people that are on the same page. It takes finding people that are humble to say, you know, I don't need to play on this bit. I want to, but I don't need to play on this bit. I'm going to let this person play on this bit. And it's a, it's a dance that you're ever learning, you know, but I want to, I want to talk about your poetry, what inspires or informs your work and you said one of the things you said was that, you know, usually the quietest people in the room have the stuff to say because they're always listening. And you speak of your poetry as a way of pra the practice of witnessing. And I would also say that part poetry is also expository because you are sharing what you've witnessed. And I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about how you got into poetry. I mean, you have literary parents that are into literature, but how you got into poetry and also why? Well, I'm going to link it a, a bit to what you just said about the pocket and the flow, because that is exactly what it is. So um, in both activism and in poetry, I feel like when you find that flow, there's a point of connection where 
it's almost like you're being guided by something, right? It's the channel, right? That process of becoming a channel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of the magic. And it takes work. It takes, you know, building, scaffolding, you know, work on self to get to that space, but it's really the channel. So the process of poetry for me, yes. I mean, I did grow up in a family um, that was really interested in literature and I was surrounded by poetry and I started writing poetry quite young. What I found it was poems came to me um, and it really was a process of sort of, yeah, voices coming to me, stories coming to me and kind of almost like inhabiting me and forcing themselves to be told. The first chapbook that I have um, is called Speaking in Tongues. And I actually called it that because that's what the experience felt like. So to just take it out of, I mean, to use the concept of speaking in tongues, tongues in its broadest sense, right? But it's that process of kind of a transition moment into a space where suddenly you're, you're hearing from the broader universe and passing it through. It is your voice talking, but it's also the voice of of other things right other powers mm-hmm. um and many of the the poems in that collection kind of came through in that way you know i'd hear stories i'm a person that people tend to tell things to mm-hmm. um oftentimes stories of their pain um i also travel and have traveled always traveled a lot a lot for my work um but also just in my family life and that also sort of the process of encountering new spaces and new people and new histories mm-hmm. tends to hit me in that way and becomes things. But really a second thing is that I need beauty. Like I, I really need beauty to live. It's, it's really important to me. An astrologer once read my chart and said that Venus sits in my, the house of my sun sign. So Venus obviously is the, <laughs> the energy of aesthetics. And I, and I said, okay, fine. If that's the reason, then that's what it is. <laughs> that it's, I need beauty to survive. And so I find in words also the, the capacity to create beauty. And um, so I enjoy that. Sometimes you find two words that come together and it's just really exciting. <laughs> and then to be able to share that and offer it out. And I appreciate it also because I read. And I read a lot of poetry growing up and that poetry also offered me that similar experience. And so I thought that's a very beautiful way of engaging with, again, our humanness and offering back to the world also some of the things that have kept me alive in the name of beauty. So it's those two things, I think. It's it's a process of witnessing, but also this desire to be a part of the creation of beauty. So yeah, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy that universe. Would you read us something? So I'm going to read a poem that I wrote for Warsan Shira, who is part of the Flipped Eye crew um, of poets that I'm a part of. Um, and this is a response to a discussion that I had with her um, after she read at the African Book Festival. And it's called Wearing the World Well. Yours is a daughter's voice, the sound of milk filling a dented sufuria. Come. We'll scatter stories like tea leaves, accent of cardamom, cup full of sugar. Our mothers pass sadness down like bracelets. These adorned wrists are amulets. May we never lower our heads at the altar of silence. 
Let me wear the sandalwood of your emptiness, a drop behind each ear, that place where pulse warms the hollow of my neck. We'll dance our loss, whirl enraptured until the day turns peppercorn black. Your love is only half the landscape, like a city with no resting place, no shop window to reflect cohon-lined eyes, glimpses of immaculate anger. The earth is already aflame, my sister. Our poetry, a bass note of amber in this sulfurous air. I want to actually ask you this, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, the world that we're in and, and what kind of world do we want to see? Because sometimes people in activist spaces, we might be a bit, what do I want to say? We can get cynical, but I actually think of you as someone who is eternally optimistic. And um, I know that you're a parent and I read this article, an interview of yours, and you said, you know, her girlhood is not a limit. It is an open door of possibility. And I just think that's so beautiful. So what is the kind of world as a parent, and I think as a person that you want to create and build and leave for her and, and all the people that come after her? Because I think that is so important. So would you speak into that a little bit for me? Sure. I mean, I feel like um, when you become a parent, you sort of think a lot about your parents and for one thing, realise the amount of labour. <laughs> you suddenly realise the amount of labour that went into creating you <laughs> um, and shaping you. But you also realise what, what you think about, what are some of the core things that I was given that I feel like have then been tools for me to be able to go on to bloom and blossom and explore and feel freer um, and to be able to embrace myself. And um, so those are the things that I think I'm seeing more consciously and thinking then about how I'll pass on. One core thing I think is just an, a sense of appreciation. So we just grew up with a sense of appreciation for things. My dad was really into music, like he's a jazz guy. Um, but we always listened to music, you know, and um, really enjoyed it. Um, food, you know, and just a, an appreciation for fresh food. You know, um, my mum is an interesting character because she's not religious, but she's deeply spiritual and very much connected to the elements of the earth is how I see it. Mm. And so I learned, again, this sort of deep spiritual appreciation for the divine in things, but also is very much manifested through, through the earth, you know, and the gifts of the earth. Um, and what the earth offers us as in terms of just even peace, um, a sense of quiet, a kind of emotional space of possibility that I, I find in the earth. So that thing of being able to sit near the ocean or put your feet on the soil and feel replenished, those little things. Um, so those are the things I'm really conscious with her. One of the things that's beautiful about small children is that they're so easily delighted. <laughs> And um, and so it also gives you back, also reminds you of happiness, and then it reminds you of those things, those little things, you know, uh, that you need to appreciate. 
I'm also really grateful. Like I have such wonderful friends, uh, you included. I have some wonderful friends and they've gifted her an amazing library. So I started off thinking, oh, I have to get books that are about feminism and this, that, the other. Um, uh, you know, over the year and a half, friends have gifted her all these fantastic books and she's the biggest bookworm. So she sits down and she just reads on her own behalf all these books. Wow. And I'm really grateful for the illustrators and the storytellers who've gone into making these books that have, you know, gorgeous images of black girls, um, really lovely stories about all sorts of things, about sort of being brave and, you know, or just fun and silly stuff or um, so much attention. So, yeah, it's just, it's that, that sense of appreciation and of care and of just, of, of, of being gentle and of remembering delight, you know, remembering delight. Um, throughout history, you know, humans have always faced the worst conditions. I mean, we're not very good at human beings <laughs> about creating the good stuff, right? We're just so into our, like, sort of, you know, oppressive monarchies and slaveries and what have you. We, we do a lot of that, you know, Holocaust and whatnot. We do a lot of that. Um, but um, in response to it, but also alongside it, we also do create, you know, spaces of happiness and, and you know, expansion. Um, and so that's one thing for me that always keeps me hopeful is just the fact that we've always fought for that. We've always created it. And there's so much in what people have done to create that sense um, that's there in the world. You just have to go and find it. Mm, yes. Yes. Gosh, I could talk to you for ages. So I'm, I'm having to field what I ask you. But um, there is also the stuff you do because I again I think I believe this is tied to storytelling it's tied to your love of beauty but the stuff you do um the temple of my skin and the stuff that you started with to do with African women and tattooing and scarification would you tell us a little bit about that you know how you got into it and why sure so um I have um I studied medical anthropology partly out of my fascination for the body and understanding kind of how we understand the cultures of health and healing and understanding how we understand the body and in history um, and in culture. Um, and so that was sort of like made, I um, tattooed, but I was also fascinated by the sort of like subculture of it and started meeting people. One of them is Laurence Sassou, who is um, a massage therapist and aromatherapist and um, is tattooed and scarred. Um, she's from Benin via France. Um, and we became friends, but we had this very, very, very strong connection um, and realized that we had this mutual fascination for kind of our own tattooing and scarification journeys, but also kind of creating space to start documenting this experience in visuals um, and in stories uh, amongst other African women, because we realized that our own experiences of it were quite different from a lot of the tattoo mainstream. Um, um, and there was really no representation of that. So much of the imagery, the creative imagery around black women and tattoos, for example, is just highly sexualized. And that's all it is. Um, African women and tattooing tends to be only in the super ethnographic way. Um, scarification even more so. And we kept looking at this and thinking, but what's your name? why did you choose to do this? Mm. You know, um, how did it feel? What does it mean to you? How is it wearing this in your skin? 
So we started this process and um, so far it's actually been very much in the pockets, as you call it. It's been very much in flow. Exactly the right people to collaborate with came on board in terms of the filmmaker, the photographer and the women involved. Um, we've done our first um, documentation of a group of women um, and we're looking to build it. And it's just, it's fascinating because so much comes through. Um, so again, it's that merging of kind of like aesthetics, but then a deeper politics and a history and a culture and creating a platform to give voice, so not give voice, but enable voice so that people can also speak their, their stories, um, into the world. Mm -hmm. Love it. Love it. Tell me, what are some of the lessons I've changed the word from mistakes to lessons that you have learned that you, you have grown from that you think we could learn from. I guess there are two. I mean, one is more, um, more from the political space than it is from the art space, but it's just that initially I assumed that anybody that enters into a space that's about wanting to change things. So an activist space is, sort of intrinsically also about that humility or about questioning power. I had initial experiences, a number of initial experiences in my early 20s in African feminist space that made me realize that actually there are a lot of people who are in activist space, yes, but they're not particularly interested in challenging their own power. Um, and a lot of run-ins um, with people in authority um, who were behaving in ways that weren't right. Um, and I was young. And of course, uh, one perhaps common thread across African societies is age hierarchy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so being young does not afford you much social power, <laughs> but I challenged and I got in a lot of trouble. And it made me realize that power circulates everywhere so that we can never assume that just because something says on the tin that it's radical, that it is. Mm. Um, and so that it's almost like our constant work to keep checking ourselves and the ways that we are behaving and speaking and using our the power, whatever power that we have and making sure that it is indeed in the service of that radical democratic belonging and that it's not reinforcing power hierarchies. The second, I think, is just on being myself. And um, it's the artist versus the sort of, you know, the professional or the doer. And I feel like as much as I, uh, I have carried the poet in me, I also feel like there are definitely periods of my life where I've sacrificed that poet mm -hmm. um, to the feeling that I need to be doing something um, more serious or indeed to the time that it takes to do other kinds of work. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like um, it's, I know it's a bit cliche, but I, the thing is that it's just the words, but I know anybody who hears it, who knows it, knows the feeling, right? Because they say who feels it knows it. Um, that art is a calling, like creativity and creation is a calling. It's like, and actually, if you don't do it, it just blocks up all your energy zones and it's just not good for your health. So I just feel like if you are called to create, you have to do it. Um, and do it in small ways, do it in big ways, but just try and constantly feel that it's as important as anything else in your life. Um, that's something that I've learned because I've also come to a phase where I've done so much of the other work and I'm looking at my poetry and thinking, I miss you so much and I want to touch you again. And I'm finding it quite difficult because I'm out of sync with that flow 
and um and it makes me deeply deeply sad and so i really do feel that anybody who's a creator you just need to create Mm -hmm. and to just embrace the fact that that is a gift and that um however small or however big a gift it is part of you being alive. And so you need to see it again as, as essential as making sure that you eat every day or drink water, you know, or earn money so you can pay your rent or whatever. It's as important. And don't sacrifice it for the other things. I love what you're saying because as you're talking, I was reminded, you know, I trained as a lawyer. And when I was doing the bar school, I was just like, why do I feel so? I had like no energy. And I felt tired and I felt down. I was like, why am I feeling like this? And I realized because I wasn't making any music. And the creating, because I am a created person, so I need to be creative. I wasn't moving in my gift. And that was the thing that gave me life. And I had to understand that, you know, this tension you're talking about, you know, doing something that's important verses or alongside doing something creative i had to understand that i am a musician who cares deeply about social justice i'm not a lawyer and coming to that realization of being myself it doesn't mean that i don't have struggles but i've never felt more alive it's like i feel like i'm finally planted and the need to be planted properly is where plants flourish and grow like i'm in the right soil so I really identify with, you know, what you said. Um, my penultimate question, for somebody who's listening to this, that's looking at the world they're in, particularly with COVID-19 and all of these things, and sometimes I think as an individual, you can one can feel powerless and just like, well, it's just too much, so I can't do anything, so I'm just going to detach. How would you, what would you say is the one thing someone c- can do to, I guess, kickstart the the activist in them or the responder in them that there is something that they can do i suppose the main thing is to just work out what do you care most about because i think that activism always comes from quite a deep personal passion um because it takes a lot to sustain it and as i said sometimes it comes with risks so it has to be worth it so what do you really care about you know and that's what you you give your energy to. So you just work out what do you really care about? Who do you care about? Um, And it often requires a process of learning a bit more, you know, trying to understand what it's really all about. But yeah, work out what do you really care about? And that's that's always a thing that's worth fighting for. That's that's good motherly advice as well. (laughs) So what music are you listening to at the moment? I'm on like a re, I'm on a journey because my, you know how it goes with all these proprietary platforms. So I kind of got locked out of one and this, that I feel like I've lost all my music. It's so frustrating. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to have to look for some more then. <laughs> um, so I'm, I use, I, I listen to music very much to change my mood or to feel, you know, to feel in certain ways. So there's no one type of music that I listen to. Um, I had actually been listening to quite a bit of jazz, like Oliver Nelson in particular some other stuff, but also um, looking for new, new voices. And I'm really drawn to women's voices at the moment. There's this um, brilliant musician, um, Ghanaian sister called Ria Boss. Um, and yeah, just a number of other African women sort of making quite contemporary music. Um, 
that I'm vibing with, but I'm on a search. I am on a search, you know, to just kind of refresh that, that part of my life. So, yeah. Listen, Jessica, I am so grateful for you taking your time and sharing your wisdom and your insight and your life journeys with us. I feel, um, I feel like I have sat at your feet today. So thank you very much. Oh, bless you. I've sat at yours. <laughs> and I appreciate what you're doing here. Really important contributions to thinking. Thank you so much. Wow, what a powerful conversation. I want to end by reading a quote from one of Jessica's papers because it's at the heart of why I asked her to come on and why I'm so passionate about us sharing resources and knowledge in order to build community. When I speak of love, I don't mean love in the romantic sense of the word. I mean love in the sense of a liberatory emotional energy. Love is the political emotional connection that we develop between each other that makes us willfully want to contribute to sustaining each other's lives. Please be sure to check out Jessica's work, go to her website, read her poetry, find out more about her project on African women and tattoos and scarification. All details are in the blurb below. And of course, share, like, subscribe to the podcast on the SoundCloud and Insta platforms at Holding Up the Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you'll also see a donate link below. Next week, I'll be joined by music supervisor Lucy Bright. And I've then started realising I know this music and I know this music because of the Kubrick films and I'd never thought about, you know, I'd seen those films, I'd loved the music, but I'd never even thought about how those soundtracks came about or films like Candyman I'd obviously seen, which Philip Glass had scored. I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. I'd never even thought about it. Until next time.